Stephanie is at the back for Bible boxes if any of the children want to go back and see her. Will you pray with me? God, you give the word of life. You are the word of life. And so as your word is read and proclaimed this morning, Spirit, would you reveal yourself to us? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. During my last Skype call with some of my friends from school, we discussed a chapter by one of our professors, Dr. Ellen Davis. She's professor of Old Testament. And in this chapter, she explains and explores the Old Testament prophets of Hosea and Amos. And as we read Dr. Davis's interpretation, we were introduced to the beauty and the depth of these prophets in a new way. She has a way of seeing connections that become obvious to me really only when she has pointed them out. And after decades of study, Dr. Davis knows her Old Testament so well. And she knows biblical Hebrew almost as well as she knows English. As I have listened to her read scripture, I have learned a couple of things about reading well and understanding the word of God. The first thing I learned from Dr. Davis is that context matters. And we think, well, we know that. We read those things, passages in context anyway. But the thing Dr. Davis taught me is that I should think of context more broadly than I might instinctively. That yes, the surrounding sentences of the passage are important, but so are the other books of the Bible. So are other passages that use the same language or share similar themes or refer to similar stories. And that by looking at those other passages, I might see new ideas as the author has expressed them. I might see connections that the author is trying to teach or I might learn that this author is really not as unique as I thought. The second thing that I learned afresh from Dr. Davis is that words matter. Because she knows both Hebrew and her Bible so well, she's closely attuned to words that are unique or words that are repeated. And she cares deeply about the words that she chooses when she translates from Hebrew into English, searching for the best possible connection between meanings. As I watch her care about these words, I have a sense that the biblical writers are a lot more like her than they are like me. They choose their words carefully, knowing that particular words invoke images from other stories and passages, or that those words will, will invoke particular cultural concepts that the people will understand. And so from Dr. Davis, I have learned to pay attention to the words that an author uses. Both of those tools will be useful this morning as we read Paul's words to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. This is going to be from a different version than you have in your pew Bible, so you may want to look at the screen. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, 
But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. As I read these verses, I am amazed at how Paul does not need to describe life according to the flesh or life according to the spirit. He seems to trust that the Romans just know what he means, which is well and good for the Romans, but it sure seems a lot less clear to me in 21st century United States. So we can turn back to Dr. Davis's interpretive tools and see if Paul can give us a little help here. In this passage, we have a set of words grouped thematically around this idea of living according to the flesh. Flesh is the first one. It's repeated three times. We see also death, the spirit of slavery and fear. Okay, Paul, that helps a little. Clearly, those aren't really ideal things in our lives. And so I understand that I don't really want to pursue the things of the flesh. But then how do I avoid them? And Paul actually provides more assistance for us through context. He spends the first four chapters of the book of Romans in a diatribe about the law and its connection to circumcision. Basically, Paul is arguing that if we trust the law to save us when we follow it completely, then we're captives. We're slaves to that law. And if we break even one part of the law, we lose any chance at life through the law. But... And that's a significant but. If we enter into the life of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, the faithfulness of Christ brings us freedom from captivity and life instead of death. We see more connection between the law and the flesh in chapter 7, right before the chapter where we read this morning. In chapter 7, the law actually increases our transgressions, because without a law against something, you can't transgress that law. So in chapter 7, we learn that the flesh is weak. It prevents us from following God. We also learn that the desires of the flesh are contrary to the plans and desires of God. There's one other place that is more clear connection to look for clarification about the flesh. That's the letter to the Galatians. These two letters deal with the same issues. The same themes appear in both over and over They share the same cultural context. They're written close to each other in time, and they're addressing the same people and the same, not the same communities, but the same teachers who are teaching the same ideas. They also share very similar language. Sometimes it's identical, as in the phrase led by the Spirit, which we see in Galatians as well as Romans. Sometimes it's just in concepts like the slavery imagery that we see throughout Romans and throughout Galatians. And so those connections help us maybe understand Romans if Paul's a little more clear in Galatians. And fortunately for us, he is. In Galatians 5, Paul gives us a rapid-fire list of life according to the flesh. It's in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. And he says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. 
of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is life according to the flesh, and these things bring death. We don't have to look very far in our society to see these practices. Isla Vista would probably contain about 95% of them on any given weekend. They're visible at company parties. They're visible in political discourse. The pull of the flesh is alive and well. But God has called us as his church to something very different. We are called to be led by the Spirit. And this, it's at this point that I become quite frustrated with Paul again because he's no more clear here than he is in his discussion of the flesh. Or is he? As I kept reading closely, I realized that he gives us more information here. He tells us how we can be led by the Spirit as we enter into that life. He tells us that through the Spirit's power, we are to put to to death the deeds of the flesh. And that we are to enter into sharing the sufferings of Christ. Enter into his death. And by doing so, we will receive his life. And then Paul tells us plenty about the benefits of being led by the Spirit. He tells us that we become heirs of God, adopted as sons with the full legal rights of a natural-born heir, and that we are glorified with Christ in his resurrection and new life. In verse 11, he says that we receive the resurrection like Christ if we have died with him. And in verse 23, he says that that glorification is the redemption of our bodies. Considering that we live in a very fallen world where we experience the brokenness of our bodies daily, the redemption of our bodies is a pretty amazing promise. Just great. So fabulous, Paul. I want all of those things. And then how do I do that day by day? What does that look like? in my life after I have put to death the deeds of the flesh. So to answer this question, we can actually lean on the second interpretive lesson from Dr. Davis, the lesson that words matter. In verse 14, Paul uses the phrase, sons of God, gender-specific. And it's not that Paul doesn't have a gender-neutral option to use here. He does. This is a letter that's being delivered to the Romans by his sister in Christ, the deacon Phoebe. And still he chooses to use a gender-specific term. Instead of techna theu, children of God, which Paul knows. He uses it in verse 16, verse 17, and verse 21. He uses it repeatedly in his other letters, in Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon, others. In fact, tekna is probably the more logical word for Paul to use here. It's a word that is often used to refer to the people of Israel as the children of God or the children of Abraham. It's a term we would expect Paul to use as he talks about the church as being incorporated into the people of Israel, which he will do in the next chapter, chapter 9. So then, if we should expect Paul to use techna, children, when he chooses to use huioi, sons, we should pay attention. Why in the world would Paul intentionally choose a gender-specific word when he's speaking to the whole church, comprised of men and women, 
and he doesn't have to. I want to suggest that Paul's use of weoitheu, sons of God, here is meant to draw our minds directly to Jesus, the one who is weastheu, the son of God. Weastheu is used 49 times in the New Testament, and almost all of them refer directly to Jesus. And then we have this case in Romans, and two times in Galatians, where Paul uses the terminology to describe Christians. The common usage of the term in the Bible should take our minds to Christ. And if Paul can describe us with the same terminology that he can use to describe Jesus, and that the church uses to describe Jesus, then somehow being led by the Spirit has to mean looking like Jesus. The sons of God look like the Son of God. The connection between Jesus and the Spirit, between Jesus as weastheu, Son of God, and us as weoitheu, Sons of God, and between Christians and the Spirit, they're not mere accidents. Jesus is the Son of God who lives in the Spirit. When the Spirit comes upon Mary, the Son of God becomes a baby inside her. When Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends upon him, and a voice from heaven says, You are my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then the Spirit leads, pretty forcefully, Jesus into the wilderness, where Satan tempts him with the words, If you are the Son of God, we ask thee. This connection between Jesus as Son of God and us as sons of God actually reveals a lot about it, what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. John the Baptist says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in John 14, Jesus promises that he will send us the Spirit of truth, who will remind us of everything that Jesus has said and done. And this is fulfilled when the Spirit is poured out on Pentecost Sunday which we celebrated last Sunday. And the Spirit is poured out with power for sharing the good news that Christ has come and what he has done. Then we see Jesus have a nighttime conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. It's one of the other passages the lectionary gives us for this morning. And he tells Nicodemus that we must be born of water and the Spirit. It's a connection to baptism that's also very prevalent in Paul. Through baptism, we are crucified with Christ, and we die with him so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we may be given new life and resurrection. And then we see Jesus send his disciples out, as Delia taught us last week, in the power of the Spirit, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and teaching them to obey Jesus' commands. We read the Gospels' accounts of the Son of God, and we see Jesus and the Spirit together. We see Jesus love the Father and tell his disciples to love the Father as well, to love Jesus, and then to love one another, and to keep Jesus' commands. That seems to be a pretty clear example from Jesus about what it looks like to be Son of God. We see radical dependence by Jesus on the Spirit through prayer as he escapes repeatedly to quiet places to pray. 
We see Jesus heal the sick, cast out demons, and set the captives free. And then we hear him send out his disciples two by two to do exactly the same things. We see him forgive sins, care for the broken, and reconcile people to God. To be sons of God is to follow the Son of God, as the Spirit reminds us of everything Jesus did. Being led by the Spirit means looking like the Son of God as we do what he sent us out to do, to heal the sick, cast out demons, set the captives free. We are led by the Spirit as we pattern our lives after the Son of God. Fortunately, the Spirit has inspired four Gospels for us to remind us of what Jesus said and what he did. If you want to be led by the Spirit, turn to the Son through study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and pattern your life after Jesus, who we find there. In Romans, Paul is quite clear about the benefits of this life. We have received adoption as sons, meaning that once, that once God has brought us into his family, we receive the same rights and privileges as a natural-born son. And yes, I chose son intentionally, because Paul chose son intentionally. In the world of the Romans, only men, male heirs, had legal rights to inherit family property. So it matters to Paul that we're adopted as sons. We're adopted as full members, full legal rights, full inheritance rights of the family to which we enter. We have the full status of a natural-born son, because in the first century, daughters wouldn't have had that legal standing. So that adoption allows us to call God Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit then testifies together with our spirit that we are children of God. And here Paul is gender neutral. It's all of us, techna, men and women, children of God. And we glorify Christ and then are glorified with Christ. Paul has promised us a lot in Romans 8, if we are led by the Spirit, and if we put to death the deeds of the flesh. So our question this morning is, have we? Have we died with Christ in baptism and shared in his sufferings so that we might receive his glory? Our baptism service, as Doug said, is on June 7th. If you haven't been baptized and would like to be, Speak with one of the pastors. If you have put to death the deeds of the flesh, then the question for us is, are we being led by the Spirit? Are we loving Jesus and following his commands? Does our life look like Jesus' life? Are we relying on the Spirit's guidance in prayer and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the world? Paul challenges us this morning to consider our own lives and see where the Spirit is calling us to be transformed.